Hey guys, welcome back to Break the Gate Podcast. We got Zach Yoshioka of Paraline Management. Uh, Zach, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's it's great to have you on. You got a um, pretty good track record. You know, you've got uh, some pretty cool artists. You know, Butcher Babies, Flyleaf with Lacey Sturm, Escape the Fate, Scary Kids, Scaring Kids, who I grew up listening to as well. Uh, so super cool to have you on and uh, hopefully, you know, teach the uh, fellow break the gators uh, some uh, some cool info about the uh, the uh, sure. entertainment industry thanks for having me yeah man for sure uh so just to kind of get into it uh can you get us a little bit about your journey in the entertainment industry uh, i know you were you were a talent buyer at one point uh with knc entertainment and then you stopped that uh when COVID kind of started and now you're just kind of solely management? Yeah. Um, uh, I guess the short version of it was um, when I was in college, I wanted to be a filmmaker and we were making films and premiering them in the dollar theater because YouTube and stuff wasn't around in the early 2000s. And um, eventually local bands saw us making music videos uh, uh, wanted us to make them music videos because they knew I was a filmmaker. And back then, if you were a filmmaker and had video equipment and editing software, it was kind of like this anomaly. So um, I started shooting music videos for mm, local bands. True. And then from there, um, I did a video, uh, a DVD actually for this group in the called from Phoenix called the Funk Junkies. And they were on a, a record label called uh, Suburban Noise Records. And they showed the owner um, who managed the Cottonmouth Kings um, this DVD I did for them. So it was like three days before I'm graduating from ASU and I'm 22 years old that I get this call. And this guy's like, my name's Kevin Zinger and I run Suburban Noise Records and we just broke off a capital. Um, can I put you on tour with the Cottonmouth Kings and will you make us a DVD? And I was like, sure, that sounds great, <laughs> whatever. So he gave me some money. I bought <laughs> yeah. two Panasonic 100A cameras and um, I left in May and I came home in September a completely uh, different person. <laughs> and somewhere in the middle of that, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, bands, uh, you know, I had shot a lot of like music videos for um, like live videos for um, bands like that were live, you know. So like, you know, one time I got a call and this guy's like, hey, my name's Neil. Mm -hmm. My band's playing the Marquee Theater. Um, we have a single coming out. Can you shoot a live music video for us. And I was like, sure, I, I would just take the audio and edit live footage over it. And that band was Three Days Grace. And, um, you know, things like that just kept happening. Nice. You know, I had shot the Warp Tour and some things before I toured with the Cottonmouth Kings, but eventually got to the place where um, mm -hmm. bands were approaching me like, hey, um, you have connections or whatever you want to call it. You want to manage our band? And I'm 22 yeah, yeah. years old. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but um, my friend's band, Morning Maxwell, asked <laughs> if I would uh, manage them. And I was like, well, um, most of the bands I know have record deals. Let's go find a record deal. So I just blind emailed mm -hmm. um, some of the connections and relationships that I had at labels from shooting videos. I would ask for the A&R department and who I would talk to down there, and they would give me the email addresses. So in one day of shooting some emails out, I took Morning Maxwell to L.A., and we met with Nitro Records, which was the Offsprings label. Um, we met with Immortal Records, which is defunct now, but they signed sure. like Corn and Scary Kids and all that stuff, Incubus. And then we met with Capitol Records, um, mm -hmm. a guy named Justin Glorfex, who signed like the F-Ups and a bunch of stuff over there. And, the, and, and long story short, the band didn't end up getting signed, but I was like, I think I can do this. And um, from there, um, yeah. I found this band called I Set to Kill from Albuquerque, Arizona. And they were kind of like, buzzing on MySpace, 
And in six months, we were on tour with Papa Roach. Mm -hmm. In um, eight months, we were on the Warp Tour. And uh, yeah, kind of that was kind of the beginning of me in the music in industry side of things. So, yeah, absolutely. Dude, I love I Set to Kill. I remember that. I remember when they were blowing up, you know, that's such a good and underrated. Yeah, it was a beautiful time. I actually had uh, sushi with Alexi and Lindsay yesterday. Uh, Lindsay was the singer at the time. And it was three oh, guys, cool. three girls, and um, yeah. we're still very close. But um, yeah, it was uh, such an amazing time because mm-hmm. you could just post on MySpace and everyone saw it. There was no algorithms or anything like that. It was like the Wild West. And as long as you stayed consistent on MySpace, um, yeah. people would hear your music and there would be people showing up to shows. So it was uh, yep. it was kind of a magical time. It was a simpler <laughs> time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to get into that a little bit because you mentioned that you more or less emailed a bunch of people and then they were open to hearing, mm-hmm. you know, the artist. You know, I feel like these days it's not like that anymore. You can't just, you know, cold email somebody and then expect a, you know, a meeting in L.A. Yeah, I was day. lucky enough. You know what I mean? Have, There's a lot yeah, more. Yeah, to know people at those labels already. So I had a relationship built for the video yeah. side of things. So um, what I sent them was kind of taken sure. serious, which... Again, I didn't know I what I was doing, so I, I was just a kid right out of yeah. college, and, you know. Uh, but I was like mystified that, like, you know, I was being taken serious, and I was able to get these meetings. And uh, yeah, like I said, that original band never got signed. But then after that, I was like, I feel like I can do this, and that was kind of the the beginnings. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool, man. Uh, so. As an artist manager, what are some of the key responsibilities you have in supporting and promoting the artists that you represent? So, you know, as an artist manager, you are the point person for the whole team. Um, you will obviously have to delegate and facilitate everything that's happening. So you're like the lead. Um, you know, if uh, the band is the star quarterback and they're getting the glory and the fame and all that, you are the head coach. And then, you know, the rest of the team members, like the record label, the business manager, the publicist, um, the booking agent, the lawyer, all those other components in their team. Those are kind of like the, you know, if I'm the head coach, then that's the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator and the special teams coach, et cetera, et cetera. So it takes a, a whole village to really rally around an artist to to give them that opportunity to become what, you know, the metaphor I use is the star quarterback. So. Mm, okay, gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and that's, we seem to get that answer quite a bit on, because uh, we've talked to a lot of different, um, you know, managers. Uh, and we had Randy I'll Nichols on uh, about a month ago. Randy's yeah, one of yeah. my favorite Randy's... people ever. He's so smart with marketing and um, he knows every quirk mm. of Under Oath inside and out. Um, he just, uh, yes, it's all psycho. A lot of it, what we do is psychological too. And uh, he is just a master at his craft. I, yeah. I love Randy. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I, I really liked his uh, perspective on NFTs. Mm. You know, I think it's uh, an interesting view on uh, what he's doing with them or what he wants to do with them. And, you know, and I, it's still such an early, you know, thing to involve uh, NFTs mm. with the music industry. And he's doing it creatively, creatively to where, you know, most mm-hmm. people aren't doing, you know. So, and it seems to be working, you know, with the, you know, the Under Oath album, you know, that they had the availability of uh, doing NFTs with the, for the mm-hmm. Under Oath album, you know, which is a really cool idea. Absolutely. Um, 
do you do anything with that with the nfts are you familiar with the perspective of uh of using it in the yeah industry? we used it um my client stitched apart messed with it a little bit during um covid um it was it was slightly profitable, but not to the point where we felt like it was like a major source of income. I feel like there's a time and a place to do NFTs. If your band's at the level where it makes sure. sense and the fan base will rally around it and you can build it into the marketing and build it into the product itself, um, I, I'm for it. But I haven't been in any situations where I felt like um, it made the most sense for any of my roster. Um it's still one of those things where I feel like it's still kind of like in the baby development beta phase where, you know, it's being utilized, but no one's really cracked the code on it to do it in a way where it's going to be super profitable for smaller yeah. acts, <clears throat> mainly for bigger acts is what I've seen it work well with. But, um, you know, for me, I'm all, all about trial and error. So I'll try something a few times. If it works great, sure. if it doesn't work all good. I'm not afraid to fail, but I kind of like waiting to see how things mm -hmm. evolve first, um, then diving in versus just diving in sure. blind, you know? So I, I've been watching them closely, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, uh, a colleague of mine released one with, with Cypress Hill and it did okay, but I've just never been fully convinced that it's something to, to put a ton of effort into with music. Um, but you know, that, that opinion yeah. could change, I'm always evolving and I'm always, uh, you know, staying current. So yeah, absolutely. Speaking of not wanting to get in too early um, in terms of the perspective of figuring out when's the right time mm -hmm. to get something um, with artists, um, how do you identify the potential talent and the commitment with artists that you work with, you know, before you kind of, you know, sign them on, what are some of the things that you're sure. looking for? Um, you know, there's a certain criteria. I was actually talking to a business consultant recently because um, we're thinking about expanding the company and bringing in more employees and, and I don't want to say franchising, but bringing in more manpower to pull off the things we want to do. Because right now we have 13 accounts and it's very overwhelming um, for just me and my wife to be working on it all. So mm. um, what I've thought about, you know, as far as like um, expansion and things of that nature, you know, it just kind of looks like it looks like one of those things like when it comes to criteria with picking up bands, it's raising that criteria to a place that makes sense for the way you run things systematically. So for me, I have a certain way of doing things. And my old criteria used to be like, you know, it's got to be either grossing a certain amount for me to take it on where the uh, manager is appropriate or the criteria needs to be like, it's got so much mm -hmm. talent that like, I can't help but um, pick it up because I know it's gonna take off like immediately. Like this thing's like on the verge of going viral, you know? So those things used to be the main th criteria I'd look for, but now uh, it's not just that, you know, I've definitely worked with difficult narcissistic people in the past. And I've worked with people that uh, have made, had mm -hmm. did not value their team. Um, and I won't do that anymore. Um, my life is too short. I'd rather work with people that want to win together as a team and want to be part of, um, yes. the way I fundamentally feel like doing business is the right way. Um, and if you don't want to do it that way, you know, um, that's all good. I've never been in the criteria where I've said I'm controlling your music. Um, and you're going to dress a certain way and you're going to write songs a certain way. I've never been that guy, but on the business side, I've always ran things a certain way to make things as effective and efficient as possible. So back to the criteria thing, what I look for is can they 
um, do what it takes on the business side to let the team do what they need to do for the artist to be successful? Um, do they have the talent? Um, do they have the songwriting ability to where um, if I put them in the room with certain people or we open the doors to certain opportunities, can they thrive? And then the last thing is, do they have the right mindset? I, I've noticed that some artists just are not ready for success. Like they're not ready to handle the pressure of touring full time or doing interviews whenever they need to, or um, they just can't handle all that pressure. They're literally just not ready, ready for success mentally. And I think it kind of goes back to that, like, you know, should high school players go directly into the NBA? You know, I found that some artists that break you know, in their mid twenties or early thirties, sometimes have the maturity and work ethic to, to be easier to work with. Um, uh, I, I don't really have a lot of time to be delegating, um, drama when, you know, we need to be focusing on the big picture things like business, et cetera. You know, um, I've been around a lot of massive, uh, artists like shine down and breaking Benjamin and Papa Roach. And these are well-oiled machines where everyone in the band and everyone in the team are focused on the big picture. Yeah, there's going to be drama here and there, but at the end of the day, it's just um, everyone is ready to take that step and everyone takes it as serious as an Olympic gold medalist takes it. So those are the things that I really look for um, these days. Um, like I said, there's going to be conf conflict and tension and problematic things that happen no matter what, but um, mainly those are the things I look for um, when, when working with an artist. So. So what qualities would you say is essential for somebody who's trying to get into the entertainment industry, you know, particularly, you know, artist management and talent buying? I know some of those things are have different mentalities, but more or less the same. You know, you have different strengths for talent buying, you know, versus different strengths through artist management. Could you go into that? Sure. A little bit? Um, for someone uh, going into artist management, I think the number one thing is. Um, it just takes time. Um, you got to have endurance. Um, there's two ways you could approach it. You could go work at a larger management company as an intern or something and try to learn that way. Um, or you could do what I did, which I don't recommend, um, is, you know, go out and just help bands and learn along the way. Um, it took a long time. I would yeah. say our, our management company didn't take off until around 2011 when um, my business partner started managing a group called Asking Alexandria. And that kind of put us on the map. Um, I had picked up uh, Matt Good, and we orchestrated the return of From First to Last, those reunion shows with Skrillex as well. And But it took a long time. It took managing a lot of like local bands and baby bands to uh, even get to that point. Um, and even today, I still don't know if we ever are going to get the feeling like we fully arrived. Um, we are a boutique company, and you know you have to look at it intentionally. On like, you know, are you going to try to be part of the corporate system and work your way up along along the ladder to where eventually they hand you Breaking Benjamin, um, or do you want to build it on your own and end up more like a Bill McGathy, where you have like you know Shine Down, Pretty Reckless, and a, and a handful of like larger acts, Hailstorm, etc. Um, another great boutique. Uh, example is velvet hammer you know mark mark and Bino over there have corn mm -hmm. system of a down deftones and i think code orange and that's pretty much all they have you know so um yep. uh, if you want to get into it like i said you know you can go intern at a bigger company and try to work your way up the ladder be a junior manager and eventually become have build your own roster um, or you can go off and do it on your own. So those are kind of the, the two ways but you gotta mm -hmm. have a lot of endurance you gotta be afraid uh, not afraid to fail um, and you've got to be willing to make a very, very small amount of money for a long time until you eventually do break to a place where the larger acts will 
want to work yeah. with you um, and and pay you, et cetera. You know, it's uh, it's very um, it takes a long time. I mean, when I look back on it, um, I think I would have done um, things a little bit differently. I think I would have been bigger on the criteria side on who I was going to pick up. Um, I was more on the side of sure. like, you know, do they have the talent and the work ethic? But there's so many things that go into making an yeah. artist successful that I've learned through growing pains over the years. So that's the advice I'd give for someone trying to get into artist management or and just mainly be open to being a sponge and learning as much as you can. And um, thankfully, I was also yeah. able to spend 14 years as a promoter from 2007 to 2014. So, or t- oh, sorry, 2020. Um, but uh, if you're going to be a promoter, that's a tough one. Um, I got into being a promoter because <laughs> my management clients were getting ripped off by other promoters. And I mm. felt like I would be easier for me to just do the show myself and have my clients not get ripped off. Um, then let someone else do a poor job and rip us off. So um, when I started throwing shows, um, it was for my management clients and um, word got out that Zach's a really good promoter and he's fair and he's not ripping anyone off. Um, I didn't own a venue, so I was a third party promoter. So when you're a third party promoter, pretty much all the expenses are real. There's nothing to hide. You're, you are paying the band what you're paying and you're paying the venue what you're paying. There's not, there's no way to really, uh, be shady about it if you want to put it that way. Um, so I was an honest promoter and I worked really hard and word got out. We got into the agency systems. And then by 2010, we had booked, I think, 40 of 45 artists that were on Vans Warp Tour. And when Metalcore started to take off, um, we were booking all the bands that were on the Pantheon agency and then into UTA, et cetera. And um, yeah, then my partner started managing Asking Alexandria and every band in that genre, you know, we were booking the All-Stars Tour, um, you know, we were booking nice. summer slaughter, all those things. And eventually that led into booking, um, you know, the SoundCloud rappers and, you know, we did shows for 21 mm-hmm. pilots and Travis Scott and all kinds of things. So if you're going to be a promoter, I would say, start with local shows, um, do it simple first, yeah. um, start from the ground up, learn, uh, through low risk, high reward situations. And then once you learn through that, you know, contact agencies, tell them about the shows you've done, build relationships, and then just keep going. Um, I'll be honest, most booking agencies see promoters as an ATM. They don't really see them as um, people who are trying to build and develop a market. But um, there are good agents out there. And if you can build relationships with those agents, you can get those bigger shows. But the thing about the biggest part of advice I'd, I'd, I'd say is if you're going to be a promoter, you need to have lots of shows on sale at one time. You can't just go one show at a time because if that show fails, there's nothing to back it up. So the way we get it, and this is not, the uh, right. like I said, this is not recommended. Um, we were booking, you know, uh, 12 to 15 shows a month at one point. Sometimes we had four shows in one day, but when the ticket gross was coming in, it was enough to pay for the shows that were losing. And then as the shows were winning, that would you know balance it all out. So we never really profited a lot of money, but the machine kept going because we kept booking shows all the time. And we were really, really um, sure. smart with being uh, trying to make sure we were finding the artists that were like cutting edge. Like when we saw Puya and Suicide Boys and all that stuff, a little peep rising up, we were the first to be knocking on those agent stores like, hey, I want that show when it comes through. Um, it was the same thing, you know, with, uh, you know, a lot of the YouTubers and stuff. We were doing shows for Danny Duncan and um, Danny Gonzalez and a lot of these guys. And it, we were not fan buying. We were booking shows to make money to pay for the, the more shows that were coming. So 
And uh, by the time 2020 hit, um, sure. I was so exhausted from like being in clubs all the time and just, you know, dealing with tour managers and venues. And because, like I said, when you're a third party promoter, you got to deal with the venue and the band side and the agent side. I didn't own a venue and I didn't have like yep. the alcohol revenue or the yep. parking revenue or, you know, service fees and all those things. I just had the ticket cash. And if the show was losing, I was losing. So, um, it was a dangerous, dangerous game, yes, but yeah. it can be done. And if you have the stomach for it and the passion for it, and you really like developing artists in a market, um, that is the way to go about being a talent buyer. Start small, low risk, high reward, and then you can get into the bigger, high risk, high reward. But they're yeah. also high risk, low reward at times too. I learned some very, very valuable lessons, but when we did it, um, I don't know, we were just out for blood. And what the best part I loved about being a talent buyer, and this is for anyone that wants to be one, you get to be on the cutting edge of everything that's coming up quick. You know, you'll be the person that books the shows for 21 Pilots in the Nile basement where 100 people show up. Um, you could be the person that does Travis Scott on a Monday where 86 people show up and then a year later he's playing the Super Bowl dating Rihanna, you know. Um, I, I, saw, I saw some crazy yeah, things, yeah. but yeah, you, you'll get to witness those lightning in a bottle bands uh, uh, in the trenches yeah. early on. Um, that was the kind of one of the coolest things about being a promoter, so. So I uh, had actually booked Spite at one point uh, in Milwaukee. Um, and as you know now, they're huge. But I, when I booked them, they were still very much of a, a, an establishing artist. Mm. Um, and when I booked them, we had 15 people sure. show up. Yeah, <laughs> so, I've had those shows. Yeah, so I definitely, yep. I definitely feel that, you know, uh, that perspective of like, you get that, you get to see the up and coming, you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. now Spite is selling out, you know, um, large venues, you know, yeah. uh, 500,000 cap venues, you know, but four years ago, four or five years ago, when I booked them in Milwaukee, um, you know, we had 15 people. So oh, yeah. and it's not to say that they weren't good. It's just, they just hadn't got there yet. You know what yeah. I mean? A lot of it's an, an investment too. Like I would book these bands where, you know, I remember the first, like first asking Alexandria show I did, it only did like, like 500 people and it sold out this room, but I got to ride it all the way to the top doing shows for it when it was doing, you know, 2000 people, et cetera. So you know, sometimes when you're booking like a Travis Scott show on a Monday night and it only does 80 people and you lose a thousand bucks, I got to book it a second time when it did 1500 people with him and Young, Young Thug um, mm. uh, co-headlining and we made our money back that we lost, you know. So it was just, it's just one of those things. It was the ecosystem yeah. of like, hey, I'm going to, if these agents believe in these artists, I'm going to book them all. And it's just a mathematical probability that um, one of them will hit out of a hundred and then you can make money on that as it goes up. Unfortunately, sometimes they go up so fast that you aren't able to hang on to it. Like 21 Pilots, I did it in the basement of the Nile. Yeah. And then um, it was in the arena the next year. So, <laughs> and Live Nation bought the whole team. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's just like, bye-bye. Sure. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Especially once Live Nation gets involved, you might as well yeah. just consider it gone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no co-promote. Uh, There's no like honoring history yeah. it's just gone <laughs> so <laughs> right absolutely we have um so i'm in east troy wisconsin now and we have alpine valley down the okay. street there and i remember distinctly when the conversation was happening when live nation was taking over um alpine valley 
um, you know, because some of the guys that are that were um, doing the shows there are now at the Pabst Theater Group, mm. um, um, and they moved over to there because Live Nation got them out. You know mm. what I mean? And it used to be uh, they would do a ton of concerts, but now it seems like you basically have to be like a Willie Nelson or uh, some other caliber artist of that size for Live Nation to use the stage now because, you know, it's just a bare bone stage. You know, there's no sound with it. There's no lighting. It's it's outside. You know, it's extremely expensive to maintain and, and equip, you know, so you basically have to be committed to selling, you know, thousands of dollars of uh, tickets to be able to even think about having shows there. And I think... Alpine probably realized that, you know, they were going to lose money if they didn't bring in a, uh, a conglomerate, a major conglomerate like Live Nation. Oh, yeah. You know? The key so, is, like I so said, there's good things and bad things to it. Yeah. To, the key to being a promoter for all you upcoming talent buyers, be ready to do a lot of them. Um, and again, do the, the, the yeah. low risk, high reward ones with local bands first. Um, and then build towards the the bigger one. But even the first five years of being a talent buyer, I put every dollar we made um, back into the company to build the company. And eventually I had the money to make deposits and take those high risks, um, uh, in order to, you know, build the company and build relationships and ride the bands to the, the larger spots, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. So in your opinion, what are some of the more significant changes and trends that you've observed in music industry? Um, I, I know that you've been in long enough to, to see it from, um, a MySpace era to where, you know, as long as you were posting regularly, you could, you know, stay relevant. And then now I'd say you have to be kind of a TikTok star and you have to be an Instagram, you know, famous, you know, and those are significant changes and trends, you know, uh, what are the ones that you are recognizing from a management perspective? Yeah, uh, there's two of them. Uh, one is obvious, the obvious inflation after COVID. And the other one before that has been streaming with DSPs. Um, you know, early when I first started in, you know, the like early 2007s or whatever is when, when our company started to like actually manage bands on a serious level. Um you know, it was all about the merch bundle um, with the pre-order. And it was all about like how many units you're selling for a week. And, you know, we were sound scanning on at venue, uh, the CDs per show and just all that thing. We were, it was all about the physical. And then in 2015, um, Spotify and streaming started becoming the main place. And, you know, everyone was up in arms because, you know, the big advances at the labels went away because, you know, you're only making 0.004 of a penny per stream. But um, as we've adapted and as we've, um, you know, evolved with streaming, kind of what I've realized is that Spotify is the same as Instagram. You know, um, if you're not dropping, uh, if you're not posting or dropping a song on a regular basis, um, it's very difficult to stay relevant. And I think that's why DJs and rappers have been able to stay ahead of the curve versus rock and metal because they self-record. Um, they're able to just create the songs faster and get them out faster. Hence, you know, you go to bat more times, eventually you'll hit a home run and you'll go viral, you know? So um, what I've seen uh, with a lot of it has been, you know, the big advances of the labels have gone away, 
But what I love about streaming is streaming is like the Energizer Bunny. It's not perishable. Um, with an iTunes download or a CD, you get 10 bucks or 99 cents once, and then it's over. Now we're licensing music to people versus mm. selling it to them. So with streaming, you know, pretty much every band recoups at some point. It might take 10, 15, 20, 30 years of streaming. But if that money's coming in, um, it's, you know, eventually going to recoup at some point. You might not be alive when it recoups, but it'll recoup at some point. And what I've noticed hmm. is that yeah. if you're generating two to four grand a month in streaming or whatever that number is for a record label, why would they keep promoting and investing into your band if they know that 18, 21 months from now, um, they're going to have uh, their money back? They can almost green light the next album for you to work on because they know they're going to be broken even 18, 20 months later. So even if you're in the red with them, they can green light the next album, which I think is kind of cool because, um, you know, we're having the record label take the risk on it and, um, you know, pay for the music videos, pay for the music videos, et cetera. But the downside of that is they own the master. And when we are not on that record yeah. label anymore, they're still going to own that master. They're still going to be exploiting that streaming, yeah. et cetera. So about 80% of my roster now um, are independent. We use uh, 1RPM, STEM distribution, Blood Blast distribution for a lot of the heavier stuff. And, you know, they'll give us an advance. We own the masters, we own the physical, we own the publishing. And once that advance is recouped, um, we get a massive royalty rate versus the small royalty rate we'd get on a record label. So um, that has been one of the biggest yeah. changes is streaming. Um, I, I love that music continues to make money every day and it's not perishable. But I do miss the, the mm -hmm. days where you could sell 50,000 records first week and you could go get a multi hundred thousand dollar yep. advance from a label. I mean, those those are things that I do. Yep. But um, in the long term, Absolutely. we're actually I, I do remember that time being a th sorry. No, I was going to say, I do remember that being that time, you know, where first week sales basically made or break your yeah uh your your career yeah and if, unless you were you releasing know. a deluxe edition or a remix album or whatever it just yeah. stops selling now it just goes and goes yeah. and goes forever um you know it, it's interesting everyone was all up in arms about that scooter braun purchasing the taylor swift catalog you know bought it for 300 million bucks but if that thing is generating 30 million dollars in streaming in 10 years scooter braun's got his money back in 20 years scooter braun's got 600 million in 30 years, Scooter Braun's got a billion dollars, you know? So it's all about the catalog. Yeah. And when you look at like Rise Records or Artery Recordings or Victory selling their catalogs off, um, it makes sense because yep. the people buying them don't care about um, uh, the accounts or anything like that. All they care about is that, hey, this streaming catalog is generating this amount per album per month. And that's how they, they judge the mm. value on it, you know? So if that's true, then I want to own my masters and I want to be as DIY as possible with most of my, my clients so we can yeah. reap the benefits of those DSPs. However, I still believe in record labels to a degree. If you're trying to be Drake or Justin Bieber or Ariana Grande, you cannot reach that level without the corporate machine behind you. But if you're a band that is playing 500 mm. cap rooms to 2000 cap rooms, you can absolutely be independent without, um, without a major label support. But you will eventually hit a ceiling because you yeah. will not be able to promote at the corporate level that they can. So, absolutely, yeah. I feel like it's rare to find artists that can do that. You yeah. know, I think a good example of that is a day to remember. Sure, um, remember tech because line. they were one of the few artists. Yep. 
So they were one of the very few artists that was able to get off of a major label and still do very, very well. And that attests to how much they uh, they grasped uh, on the industry, mm-hmm. you know, how things work on the business level. Yeah. And that takes a special group to be able to recognize that and practice those after, you know, finishing with the, the label. Yeah. And unfortunately, not everybody in a band, you know, is going to have that same mentality. They're just, they just hit right place, right time with the right people, the right mm-hmm. genre. They fell into it, you know, around the time when, you know, people were tired of a lot of the other things that was already out there. And they just hit that chord with a lot of people. And mm-hmm. they were able to ride that, you know, all the way to the top and stay there on their own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing, the inflation, I mean, my tour budgets from 2019 versus uh, 2023, it is like night yeah. and day, everything, all the everything from blank t-shirts to tour buses to fuel, it's up at least a third, sometimes two thirds in, in certain things. It's wow. It's crazy because my bands are growing and they're grossing more money. But it's so hard to, yeah. to look back at the 2019 budgets to now because it's just if this was 2019, some of us would be wearing silk underwear right now. So, <laughs> sure, absolutely. Do you think some of that is just from COVID? You know, with the rise of demand. You know, everybody's back on the road now. So, yeah, I mean, there's things like supply chain. I mean, the venues were closed for 18 months, so they're all in debt trying to recoup SBA loans. Yeah. Um, the bus company, sure. same thing. The buses sat for 18 months, so they're trying to recoup SBA loans. You know, fuel is what it is. Yep. It's just, you know, there's nothing you can do to change it. I mean, we just got the settlement back from one of my clients from Australia. And I was looking at it and I was like, this doesn't seem right. This seems really light. But then when you really break yeah. down the expenses and you look at life after COVID on what it costs to run a show at a venue, it's night and day. You know, things changed and uh, yeah. you got to do the best you can to keep up with it. And, um, Unfortunately, the only way to offset it is ticket prices for uh, patrons are larger than ever because it's costing more to tour. So when people are complaining about you know sure. these massive ticket prices, etc., you also got to understand that Live Nation and Ticketmaster were closed for eighteen months as well. Everyone's just trying to get back to a place yep. of reset, and um, the people getting crucified right. for those sins are the patrons, unfortunately. But um, hopefully, yeah, you know, absolutely. With the next election and places, things like that, we can get back to a better place with the economy, not only with the a concert side of things, but just the world in general. But honestly, COVID changed yeah. everything, you know, so th- that's what yeah, the, the it biggest, most discouraging part of it, because we're over here with my clients. We're just trying to put out music to the world. And I really, truly believe that being a musician and a songwriter is a key part of uh, society. You, they play a very important role in society. And I really wish there was a way to make it more fair. So, yeah, I, absolutely, I agree. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, you know, can you go into a little bit more of the role of technology and social media and the success of artists? Um, how do how do you personally um, use these platforms to promote sure. your artists? Because that's something that everybody's trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, it's all about the DSPs and streaming now. So whatever you can do content-wise um, and posting-wise, whether it be Twitter, um, TikTok, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it may be, you're trying to drive people to the DSPs so they continue to stream, they continue to stay active with it. Um, you know, you can sit on TikTok and make funny videos. You can 
you know, uh, go on Instagram and just, you know, make sure you're making reels and posts and stuff. And hey, we got this song coming out, et cetera, et cetera. But we're in such an ADD world now that um, mm -hmm. unless you're dropping something new, um, things get old pretty quick. I mean, I feel like when an, uh, when a band yep. drops a single or an album two weeks later, it's just old, you know, um, that sounds yes. harsh because we've, we've all poured our hearts and souls into this, but it's just the reality. It's just old, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you've got to continue to drop content around it or tour to make sure the, the song stays relevant and stays spinning. You know, what I've noticed with escape the fate, um, when they tour, um, their DSPs go up. Because they're not playing to people, they're playing to people's cell phones. And when they're they're playing to mm. people's cell phones, they're going to Spotify, they're following, they're streaming the song afterwards, etc. So it's changed now. Um, we used to go on a tour to hustle CDs and sound scan them once a week, and now yep. we're going out on tour to make sure they hit that QR yeah. code and, and start yeah. streaming and following and making sure all that goes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's just yeah. that's been the the biggest change I've seen, and everything is it's all about the DSPs and. Social media is literally to drive people to the DSPs. So um, that's uh, yep. as simple as I can put it. And you can, you know, you can talk algorithms, you can talk content and different tricks and whatever clickbait sure. all you want. But really, what we're doing with social media is we're trying to drive people to the DSPs. So, yeah. Oh man, I forgot about SoundScan. I forgot that was a thing. <laughs> You know, and now <laughs> yeah. it was like the bread and butter. And now it's like, oh, that's right. That was a thing that we, it was a tool that we had to use. You know, I don't care about billboard or um, anymore. It, All I care about is how many streams you do first week. Yeah. Wow. That is impressive. 300. Well, absolutely. Streams, 2 million streams. Like, that's all I care. Yes. About. Yeah, absolutely. Unless, you know, you're um, a larger artist, you know, you may not even get to that point to where you might chart on billboard. Yeah. Uh, the last artist that I managed was Dreamhouse. Uh, they're based out of Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. They uh, toured with Johnny Craig. They did Warp Tour run. Um, and right before I left them, they charted on the Heat Seekers mm. for Billboard. And it did very, very well. That that single did very, very well. A um, couple years, or no, just, I guess, yeah, a couple years ago, they released a, a track. And it's uh surpass a million on spotify but it didn't chart billboard mm, yeah and it's, it was weird you know yeah. because there's that that change you know uh, in the way, way the environment the works too yep yeah that really yeah. messed everyone up on first so, i can't remember when it was I, it was like during the pandemic SoundScan changed the rate of streams which equaled one unit and that threw everyone's numbers yep. off. Um, and then they changed the thing yeah. too with a bundle. You can only sound scan one thing from a bundle, not two things from a bundle. Now there's there's all these oh, weird yeah. uh, weird things that go into it that stop artists from charting a certain way. But at the end of the day, yeah. to me, it's more about building a fan base and conversion. Um, yep. You could flex with the Billboard, um, you know, post all you want. At the end of the day, sure. um, you're really just trying to get people to follow your band and stay loyal to it versus being like Tinder and swiping to the next band. I think the most dangerous thing on yeah. Spotify is the other artists you may like or other artists that are like this artist because um, it's literally just killing the loyalty in your artist yes. to that. Like when you used to buy a CD, yep. I committed to listening to the CD and I committed to the CD being in my CD booklet. Now with Spotify. Yep. It's just as just music is just as disposable as Tinder or anything else in the swiping world. So, yep, you're absolutely right. It's really hard to uh, capture that uh, 
DSP listen from like TikTok or Instagram. You know, mm -hmm. I know they've got different things like, you know, Beacon, um, Time Tree, or uh, yeah, Time Tree, you know, a couple other things that you can uh, put into the link, you know, on your TikTok and it'll bring you to your Spotify. But it's weird because it doesn't integrate well. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it typically it brings you to like a web browser, mm -hmm. at which point you can listen to it, but it doesn't lock you into Spotify, you know, so you have to almost have a conscious mind to be like, okay, well, I'm going to go to Spotify and I'm going to look up the artist now and then I'm going to follow them and I'm going to listen to the song. And as you said, everybody's ADD. So mm -hmm. most people aren't going to do that, you know, yeah, it, it's that capturing of the data, you know, the, the feedback from, you know, Instagram, TikTok, and moving it over to Spotify is a yeah. really hard thing to do. And it was interesting to see uh, labels picking up people off of TikTok followers mm -hmm. and, you know, and likes and views because they felt like, oh, well, they did very well in this platform. So obviously it's got to translate. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. You know, it didn't translate at all because <laughs> yeah. people are just people. That's the it, way it we are. Sometimes like my buddy found Bailey Zimmerman on TikTok and took him all the way to the top. Mm. But, you know, again, that's the lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Um, I was watching this Rick Rubin interview sure. of 60 Minutes the other day. And Rick Rubin said the best thing. He said that record labels and producers and most people, most bands out there are trying to just give people what they want. And Rick Rubin said, People don't yeah. know what they want. People only know what they heard last. So if you can make them feel something yep. um, and make them feel something that's genuine and authentic, then you will win. And I thought that was a really bass backwards yes. way of putting things, but it makes a lot of sense because obviously if a hamburger sells well at In-N-Out, McDonald's is going to try to do something that sells well just like that. And everyone's copying each other. Next thing you know, sure. Taco Bell is selling French fries, but... I think when it really comes down to yep. it, if you can make people feel something and the artist actually feels something, um, it will get back to those roots of translating. Um, Howard Benson's a pretty good buddy of mine. And he said that when he worked for Clive Davis years ago, he said that the way they pick songs to produce had nothing to do with music. He said Clive Davis and him would sit there with the um, lyric sheets of songs. And the, they either liked the lyrics or okay. they didn't. And if they didn't like the lyrics, the song was not getting produced. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the hit and how do we replicate a hit? Um, and does the audience really know what they want or does the audience only know what came before? So those are all uh, interesting yeah, things absolutely. To, to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, some, that's why sometimes you'll get six different songwriters on one song. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very much of like trying to figure out, you know, what people want to hear, you know, how to construct the sound, the, the lyrics around the, the music. And, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. You mm -hmm. know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So what steps would you recommend someone who's trying to be an artist manager for bigger artists, you know, cause you've kind of went from, you know, the smaller artists and now you're, mm -hmm. you're managing artists who are touring around the world, you know, selling out, you know, uh, large venues, uh, are there specific things that people should be focusing on to be able to get to that realm? To get to managing bigger ones? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. You, can, you can get a job. Like I said earlier, you can get a job at a management company and uh, you get to a place where they might just hand you a large artist. Like my buddy, he used to manage yes. Blake Shelton. He works at Rock Nation now. He got over there. The first artist they handed him was a little Uzi Vert. Um, my buddy mm. who managed gym class year, heroes for years joined crush management. He gets there one weekend. They said, here's Courtney love. 
you know? Um, you wow. can go about it like that, where you have a track record with something that's a little smaller, and then they give you something larger, yep. um, where, you know, you're challenged at the company. Um, but I also think that, you know, it's not as difficult as you would think. If you have strong criteria and a strong foundation, you could take a band zero to a hundred, you know, and you can also be the guy that come in yeah. and take a band that was at a hundred and it's kind of dropped down and fix the infrastructural things that are happening um, to make the band more efficient on the business side to get it back to a place where it's consistent and become on top again, you know? So there's really no formula yeah. for it. Um, I've known people that didn't know anything about management and they were managing their friend's band and suddenly it's huge, you know? Um, I've seen situations yeah. where, you know, um, Echo Smith's, their dad, you know, manage the band as a local band and yeah. he's still the manager today. So I think that more so than anything, it's more about like, can you recognize what's working and can you amplify that? You know, um, I always use the internet yeah. menu as the perfect example. Um, when I go and work with bands, I try to see, I look for the ingredients that work. I don't look up to fill the menu with 5 billion things. I look for the ingredients that work and I try to amplify those. And if you can identify those things, yeah. um, you can see a band grow, whether it be brick by brick or a big one. But there's real no sure. set path to just managing big bands. Uh, I would say more than anything, just immerse yourself with as much information, do as many internships um, on all sides of the business to learn. Um, and just, uh, be willing to put in the time. I've noticed that like Seth Rogen made the best quote one time. He said, if you don't quit, um, you might make it, but if you quit, you definitely yeah. won't. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And he, <laughs> and he talks about That's you know, true. The, the guy that played, uh, Magneto. He didn't become big until he was, you know, 65 years old. The next thing you know, he's Gandalf and Lord of the Rings, but no one knew who Ian McClendon yeah. was until, uh, you know, he was 65 years old, but he enjoyed what he did. He was just some random off-Broadway actor. And, you know, he just stuck with it. Yeah. And, you know, he enjoyed the journey. And I think that's the biggest part of, you know, if you're going to pursue anything in life, whether it be artist management or talent buying or being in a band, et cetera, just know that you're never going to arrive yeah. at a place where you feel like you've made it or there's this, like, satisfaction of I'm number one. Because if you look at the documentaries with Metallica, Machine Gun Kelly, um, Lady Gaga's another great mm -hmm. one, her documentary on Netflix. When they are number one, when they are on top, they're more miserable than ever because I think that psychologically they believed that yeah. they were going to reach this place of peace um, and there was going to be yeah. some sort of like um, fulfillment there and it's just not there. You know, the guys in Metallica are getting divorced sure. and crazy things like that. Lady Gaga, you know, her manager walks up to her at the end of the documentary and the manager's like, you're number one all over the world and the entire world tour is sold out in, in stadiums and she looks lost. And Machine Gun Kelly's manager's calling yeah. him in that Hulu documentary telling him, hey, you're number one for the second time. And five minutes ago, he pulled a shotgun out of his mouth. So, I mean, that's just the yeah. sad, sad part of, I think, um, making things in your life idols that shouldn't be. Um, like career or whatever, when really the number one thing in your life should probably be family and the, you know, being kind to people, being loving. Those are the, probably the things you sh we should prioritize because when you get what you want, um, it's just never going to satisfy. And that's the biggest thing I've learned in this journey is, you know, um, I don't know, like our, our company had asking Alexander and, and my business partner thought we were going to be millionaires. And then Danny left the, yeah. and, you know, he was yeah. bummed out about it and it just never 
was what it was, but you know, we were able to take bands like Escape the Faint and Butcher Babies and Lacey Sturm and put Flyleaf back together and all those things. But yep. and all those things are exciting, but they've never been um, what I've considered life to actually be about. And I think that yeah. um, if you're going to strive for those big places, um, just keep those things in the back of your head like, hey, this will be cool temporarily, but it's never going to satisfy me, you know? So absolutely. I think there's two components to that too. It's the the finding happiness in success is really hard to do because every time you get to a certain point in your career, there's always going to be like, all right, well, now I want to get to there. And now I want it to get to there. And if you don't stop and take a look of how far up the ladder you've already been, you're never going to know how big the ladder is. Yeah, you know just I mean? enjoy the journey. It, you got to do it because you love it. Yeah. That was the whole point of yeah. Ian McLennan. He did it because he loved it. And yeah, he got right. to be Magneto and Gandalf, like, but he was 65 years yep. old. <laughs> like, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other component to that, too, is you're absolutely right with there not being a path to being able to manage, you know, larger artists. Um, mm-hmm. I have a friend, you know, Sierra, uh, she's she worked with um, Warped Horse, Sierra Lyman. Um, she was Kevin's daughter. Uh, mm. she started out, you know, um, doing, you know, NPO manager for warp tour. And then she was getting her degree in graphic design. Um, and that's what she was going to do. Cause her ultimate goal was to work for Vogue or cosmopolitan sure. or one of the market magazines. And then, um, magazine died out, you know, essentially, mm. you know, so she was working for six man for a while. And then now she starts, she started working for a company called the family and she's a junior artist manager for Avril Lavigne. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so the path for most people is all over the place. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, yes, there's a, the basic structure of like, yes, you could intern at a label. You could work in the mailroom. You can work your way up. But you don't have to be afraid if that's not something that you're able to do. You know, if you can't get the job as the intern at the record label, don't stop there because obviously everybody's past is different. You know, you can find something that's going to get you to that next step and then it'll get it to the next step. Just have fun with it. Yeah. You know, manage you your decide. buddy's band, you know, book your favorite shows. Yeah. You got to decide intentionally uh, what you want your life to look like later and then work backwards from it. I always wanted to be my own boss. Yeah. So the idea of interning somewhere never sure. made sense to me. I just dove in and just did it myself and learned the hard way because if you want, if you have a vision to be something, you have to set that goal and work backwards towards it. So, um, yeah, I just never saw the way as being like, you know, climbing a ladder when someone else's fortress. It was more like build my own fortress and that'll be that. But um, there's pros and cons to each way. And, you know, I, I'm not managing Arena Acts by any means, but I have had a handful of clients sure. you know, tour with the Arena Acts. And I, I do believe with the promoter yeah. backing I've had, we'd be more than qualified to work on projects that large, but you know, you just keep learning you keep growing and uh, yeah, you just enjoy the journey as it comes because if you get too caught up in what other people are doing or where you at, where you're at for where your age is, et cetera, it's not productive. You know, you need to have tunnel vision and just like yeah. focus on like what I'm trying to achieve and anything's possible. I mean, we're all built with the same cells <laughs> as anyone else. The only yeah, absolutely. Is that some yeah. people are better with endurance and some people are better with pressure. So sure. Absolutely. So how important is it for, 
an artist manager to have industry contacts. I know you mentioned that that helped you in the beginning with some getting some your management career started. Is that do you feel like it's important for a manager to have industry contacts or is it really more about the work ethic? Um, it is important, but it's not the be all end all. If you have something that's special and you are creating um, through marketing something that is very, very attractive, um, they will come to you. Um, and as time goes on and as you've worked with more clients where you've had people come after you, you build those relationships and you build those contacts and you build that um, you know, repertoire. I mean, during COVID, I felt like was the best time to strike as an artist manager or someone trying to build contacts because uh, no one was doing anything. They were just networking. They were seeing what was going on. They were just poking around. They were just trying to fill their time. So you know, I did meetings, as many Zoom meetings as I could with as many people as possible to try to build my network. And um, when COVID ended, you know, my roster was stronger than ever. And um, I was the one guy that was able to figure out a way to make money not touring. And I was through Twitch. And that's a whole other story. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was really cool because, you know, I just spent so much time on LinkedIn premium hunting down people and, uh, you know, yep. you can email anyone if you have a LinkedIn premium account, you know, you can email yep. the head guy at Coca-Cola or you can email the head guy at Capitol Records. It's all right there. Um, I do have a Polestar mm -hmm. Pro account where I'm able to contact the record labels, management companies and agencies of all that. But I would say being in the video business first and then being a promoter, I had just built so many relationships with so many bands and, and stuff over that, that time period that by time I was doing management full time without being a promoter. Um, I just knew everyone everywhere, but that did, it doesn't yeah. mean I can just pick up the phone and someone will give me a million dollar deal. I still have to sure. bring something to the table that is um, mutually beneficial in business. And that's the thing is like, I think fundamentally you always got to look at it is, is the product, the client, something that I can present to people where they will get into a mutually beneficial business agreement, whether it be a record label or a publicity deal or whatever it may be, a show negotiation, is it mutually beneficial? And to me, that is more valuable than anything. It's just building yeah. something that has value and then something, and then using the fundamental of, Hey, is it mutually beneficial? And that's what will propel an artist's career. So. Absolutely. We had a conversation with, uh, Ricky Armanillo from, uh, Einstein kills. Um, and he mentioned something very close to that, where you have to develop your brand and have a brand that's presentable to where you are employing people other than just your artists, your managers and your talent buyers, mm -hmm. you know, you know, your stage hands, you know, uh, your drum tech, your guitar techs, like those are all people who were hired on on a tour, you know, to take care of the band. You know, you want to be able to present that uh, your your brand as a way that you could do that. You could provide that for you, mm -hmm. you know, for, you know, for the label or for whoever. Absolutely. You know, yeah. 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 Building a team around your 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 band or brand or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's key. Like just getting yeah. people on board and making sure people stay inspired, not drained. Um, yeah. Those are all key components. You know, I look at like social distortion, same manager, same agent, same label, same everything, whole career. And that is what has built them into the legacy act they are today. You know, they never had peaks and valleys. They were just social D a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a yep. little bit bigger. And it's the same thing with Slipknot. You know, back in the day, Limp Biscuit and Deftones were bigger than Slipknot. And now Slipknot's the king because every year- yep. 
little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. They never skyrocketed to the top every year. They just kept building. And I think the brick by brick mentality will keep loyalty with fans and your team stronger than um, skyrocketing to the top. Everyone's trying to jump on board and then the next single doesn't hit and people are like, well, that was cool. See you later. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I had thought about this question earlier when we were talking about releases and, and then I forgot it because uh, I also have an ADD mind. Um, in terms of releases, have you felt that there was effectiveness in the waterfall effect or the waterfall release plan? Or is there something better than that? You know, because it's like the single, the music video, whatever. Do you do you find value in that? Um, it, it's a case by case basis. If you're a band that you know, you're trying to build your algorithm up. I would say a single every eight weeks makes sense. And then content in between those eight mm -hmm. weeks to build, um, make sure the streaming stays relevant or keep the band on tour during those eight weeks. So, you know, the streaming continues and then the next single rides off the algorithm of the one before and so forth and so forth. That is one way to do it. Um, but if you're as big as Eminem, you could drop a whole album without anyone knowing about it. And that thing's going viral no matter That's what. That's fair. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it really comes down. Like you can sit here and say that this is the path to do it, but it's a case by case basis, you know, and it also uh, goes to where the artist is in their career. If they're an artist that's already established, I might take a different approach. If it's an artist sure. that has no following and no algorithm, then you got to go brick by brick and waterfall might make more sense. So um, I yeah. am big on releasing singles, at least like, five to six singles before an album comes out. But sometimes it makes more sense with where tour lands, et cetera, to do two or three singles, you know? So it's just, it's sure. all about aligning the planets and wherever I see the most convergence waiting to happen down on the timeline is how I'm going to line it up. So, yeah, absolutely. So the things like, you know, the waterfall DSPs, all that stuff, those are all kind of knowledge pieces that you learn, you know, by oh, yeah. being in the industry and, and working, you know, and developing that vocabulary. Um, yeah. Is it crucial, would you say, for an artist manager to have a deep understanding of how the music industry works in its various sectors, you know, publishing, touring, marketing, and then knowing some of those terminologies that come with it? Yes, you should be very, at least surface level, knowledgeable on logistics for touring, metadata, publishing, um, you know, it's important to do deep dives with contracts, all those things. And a lot of it's situational. I learned most of my, I never went to music or business school. I learned all of it pretty much just by being in those situations. But the more you can know about all the aspects, the more stronger and more weapons you'll have when it comes to actually deal, dealing with them. Um, there's no right or wrong way. I mean, I think the number one thing is if you don't know, be able to have the humbleness to say, I don't know, but I'm smart enough to yes. figure it out. And I'm willing to put in the commitment to become an expert in it. And um, yeah. like I said, I don't know everything about publishing or sound exchange or whatever, but I know enough to where my instincts are there. But I do use pub consultants and I do use certain pub companies and stuff to to help me on things that I don't, I'm not an expert in. That's why bands hire lawyers and public, uh, publicity people yeah. and have a booking agent, et cetera. You hire people that are 100% experts in those lanes to help serve the band better. And then the manager is the liaison to all of it. But the more you know about all of them, the more powerful you yeah. are. I feel like I watched a, enough bands as a promoter go from the van and trailer to the bus back to the van and trailer where I could see in sure. the trenches what was happening. And, you know, sometimes certain albums didn't hit 
on the second album. And I didn't understand why. But then you, when you really did the research into it and you saw how much work was put into the one that did hit or the timing of it, et cetera, et cetera, you could start creating at least theories on why a band could be more successful if they did it this way versus that way, you know? But again, yeah. really, it comes down to the song. Is the song affecting people? Is the song making the hair on your arm stand up? Is the song communicating an emotion that's genuine to people that they're connecting and identifying with? Um, that's really what it comes down to. I could sit here and talk about formulas and ways of doing things all day, but at the end of the day, sure. the song is there or it's not. And I watched Machine Gun Kelly go from you know writing rap songs to writing pop punk songs. And if you listen to those lyrics, I don't care what age you are, I don't care you know, what genre you're into, those lyrics affect me. It's the same thing with Bring yeah. Me the Horizon. They went from being super heavy to, you know, writing more of a rock, uh, active rock album. And again, those sure. lyrics are undeniable, you know. So um, yep. sometimes things just skyrocket to the top because just the songs are there. The new Bad Omens is another great example. I love seeing bands like Bad Omens and Ice Nine Kills break after, yep. you know, seven to 10 years of just grinding it out. Dance, Gavin, Dance, a perfect example. Yeah. 12 years yep. on the grind, but they stayed consistent. They kept releasing albums. Yep. Um, even though they had singer changes, they just kept going and kept going and kept building brick by brick by brick. Yep. And now they're a countercultural band. I mean, they're literally got, they have that cult following, you know, that is, and there'll be a band yes. 10 years from now. Yep. I guarantee it, you know, so. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, to kind of go into a little bit of the working with complex teams, um, obviously bigger artists have, you know, more complex teams. The bigger you get, the more people you get on your team. I mean, that's kind of the goal, right? It, it allows people to, you know, as you said, you know, the people who are good at what they do to be able to focus on things that other people aren't good on. Mm -hmm. um, could you go into how you navigate working with, um, you know, the various um, people such as, like, you know, publicists, lawyers, record label representatives? I know that uh, communication is, is, is a key thing, but could you go into that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, I think... Um... It's important for agents and um, book, book, excuse me, booking agents, lawyers, and record labels to, and other people on the team to understand, even the business manager who does the accounting and stuff, to understand what the band is trying to do and understand um, the band's vision. Um, if a band doesn't have a strong vision or they're um, in you know, conflict with each other on what the vision should be... Um, it's most likely that the rest of the team is not going to be able to accomplish that because there's a blurred, um, a blurred end goal. You know, um, we can all, you know, anyone, mm -hmm. any booking agent can book shows, any manager can manage bands, any record label can drop a record, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't understand what the big vision is, um, it's very difficult to operate at a place where you're going to be goal oriented versus just paper pushing, you know, moving things along, you know. And um, I think it's really yeah. key to for the team to listen. But at the same time, I think it's really key for the artist to value um, the expertise that these people are bringing to the table. Because these are the people that do this all day long, look at record contracts, sure. look at promoter offers, look at um, you know the DSPs and where things could land seasonally, which would be better than others. They're the experts. you know. So if you're hiring them as the experts to help you with your career, it's key for the artist to provide them a strong vision and it's key for the manager to communicate that vision um, in order to pull it off. Now, some things are can get complicated. It, you'll have to get creative. I mean, from my chair, I've been stubborn enough to listen to the visions and say, we're going to pull this off. I don't know how yet, 
but somehow we're going to find a way and we're going to pull it off. And um, I think that's yeah. where the leadership side of management comes in is you've got to get the team and the band with the vision um, to the end zone. And sometimes you get to the end zone and, you know, um, you can't run the touchdown in, but it's so key to do whatever you can to get there and do your best to try to make that vision happen because at the end of the day, you're representing the band. So, yeah, absolutely. So we have time for one more question. Um, and I save this one because I feel like it's the, the one that most people are going to want to know. Um, what are some of the more effective strategies for securing, you know, some of the bigger opportunities such as like major festival slots and opening for well-established artists? I know, I feel like that's a question a lot of, you know, smaller mm -hmm. artists, local bands, you know, are trying to figure out because it's, you know, it feels like it's, unless you know somebody, you know, there's really no other way to do it unless you sell tickets, you know, for yeah. a venue or something, you know? Um, the harshest way I could put that is write a bigger song, create that attractiveness and okay. uh, get that attention on that song to where it's undeniable and they'll come to you. Um, the other way to go about it is, you know, if you hire a team, make sure your team is already in those channels and have those relationships and are able to put you um, in those submission lists and in those channels to get those opportunities. But, you know, I could submit um, with a booking agent any, uh, baby band out there but if it's not attractive enough with you know the numbers and you know the activity um that's going on with that band um the festivals the promoters the other people given the opportunity will just pass over it you know the key more than anything is yeah. to build that hype around you and then everyone will come after you um it's not the way it used to be in the mtv days where if you were a local band and you wrote good songs you could give it to the record label and they'd get get it on mtv and put it on the radio and all that um yep. today it's all about you know building yourself the artist development of it first yeah all our attention's here yep. so if all our attention is right yep. here um you need to basically get into a place where you're super attractive on the cell phone and then that'll translate to real life after the fact with opportunities etc so yeah. um again I, i've seen bands that weren't really that big get with the right team and they get all the opening slots on the big festivals and they get all the big tours but sometimes they don't break, you know, where are they yeah. after all those festivals and all those big tours? Why aren't they headlining, you know, cause there's no conversion. Yeah. So the best way to do it, I think honestly, right. is just, you've got to just grind it out. You know, that's what will create a loyal fan sure. base and that's what will create a cult like following that will stick with the band and fund the band for years to come. Um, I had this meeting with a guy named Dave Strunk at UTA one time. He was a territorial agent for Arizona. And he was talking about his roster. And I was like, how have you been here since uh, for like 12 years? You, you've been here since the company opened or whatever. And Dave Strunk said, when I build my roster, I don't look for things that are spur of the moment, like, um, you know, the hype of today or whatever. He's like, I'm not trying to pick up Rebecca Black, you know, where it's just this viral thing. I don't yeah. like the old thing. He's like, I look for cult-like followings. I look for bands that can consistently do the same business and whether they're growing or not, they never get smaller because they have the same cult-like loyal following. So he had artists yeah. like the Blood Brothers and stuff like that that mm. you know could play the big festivals a couple times a year and then go away. And next year, those fans would still be there. If they want to take two years off, those fans are still going to be there. You know, And his entire yeah. roster was cult-like bands like that. They weren't this, these big viral things, but they were enough to sustain his roster, sustain, sustain his chair at UTA. 
And that's kind of the philosophy I've had with a lot of my artists is I don't want to work with artists that are not going to be popular two years from now. I want to work with artists that have followings that um, we continue to service um, and provide for uh, as they provide for us over years to come. You know, and if you look at Butcher Babies or Escape the Fate or even Lacey Sturm or Scary Kids, they have these followings where they're just rabid. The people will always be there. They're loyal. They're not the swipe and I'm done with it. Um, they're just... Uh, they're loyal to it. And finding yeah. artists like that and building artists in that mentality has been fundamentally what I've always tried to like stick with. So, Absolutely. All right. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming in you know, and talking. Uh, this is one of our longer podcasts, and uh, I wish we could go longer, but <laughs> we've got another one right after this. So <laughs> for sure. Uh, we'll have to Thanks have you back on again at some, at some point. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. you guys. Man. I love what you guys are doing. I love all the guests you're having. And um, yeah, man. Thanks for Thanks so much. I'm very grateful.